if I said, think of a team of brothers, who would you think of? Famous or infamous? Oh, I wouldn't, I would know you would say that. <laughs> First ones I thought about were John and Robert Kennedy. I mean, they just, they go together. Throw something else out at, at me. Who else would you think of? Who? I know what channel you watch. <laughs> the Property Brothers. <laughs> you know, I thought about people like uh, William and Harry. You know, the two princes, they go together. Uh, the Marx Brothers. Uh, okay, I just see them on late night television. I'm not old enough to actually remember them. We think of brothers, and you would think, you know, when you think of a relationship between brothers, brothers know it all don't they, about each other. I mean, they keep each other's secrets. I've told you this before, several Thanksgivings ago, I was setting the table with my Thanksgiving candelabras and noticed that one of my candle holders was broken and meticulously glued back together. And I called all three of my boys in because I knew it wasn't Amy, and I was like, anybody want to tell me what happened to this? And they all looked at me like I've never seen that candle holder before in my life. So I figured my energetic six-foot-four-and-a-half son must have broken it, or either they were all three involved and the, the architect glued it back together and my military son hid it back in the back of the china cabinet. So brothers stick together until they need to tell it all. And then, buddy, you get one of them started. And my favorite story is, Mom, do you want to know what really happened to the cat? And I'm not going to tell you. I'm embarrassed. Brothers have a very unique relationship. And we're going to talk tonight about a brother. We're going to talk about the book of James, the brother of Christ. Some of our ladies spent time this summer going through a study on the book of James. And ladies, if you didn't get to be involved in it, we're going to do it again later in the year. So maybe you can connect and be a part of that study. So while they were studying it and we were on sabbatical, I was reading the book of James. And I thought, you know, if you were the brother of Jesus, if anybody had a right to fame, if anybody had all the good stories it would have been the brother of Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you like to know if Jesus jumped on the bed when he was a little boy? Wouldn't you like to know if Joseph had ever had to say, Jesus, get down from there? Wouldn't you love to know if there was anything hid in the back of Mary's china cabinet that only brothers knew about? Wouldn't it be neat to hear the other side of the story from the brother? But this is a very, very unique story book. And not one time does James fall back on, I'm the brother and I know things. Not one time does he even mention the fact that Jesus was his brother, that they grew up under the same roof, that they ate the same meals, that they traveled the same roads. He simply begins his letter like this. This letter is from James a slave of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. James, a servant. Some translations, he calls himself a slave. When you're a slave, you have no will of your own. Someone else determines your comings, your goings, where you live, what you eat, what you drink, when you sleep, when you don't sleep, when you work, when you don't work. Someone else determines all of that. And James chooses, of all the things he could have described himself as, to say, I am a slave. My will is not my own. I belong to my master. I belong to God. And he described himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I give my service while I, while I belong to my master. I give my service to my Lord. I give my service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes who he's writing to. The 12 tribes of Israel, the believers in Jerusalem, had been scattered to all the corners of the known world because of persecution, because of trials, because of things that were beyond their control. They had had to leave and go all over the world, knowing that some of them would never see family members again, that some of them would never get to go back to Jerusalem, that they would be in strange places with strange customs that didn't understand them and they didn't understand where they were going, but it was because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And James chose this group of people to write a letter to. And he says, I'm going to show you and I'm going to tell you in this letter what it means to be a passionate follower of Christ. Almost three years ago now, I had to have a very extensive surgery. And one of the things that we had to do before the surgery, and I couldn't believe it, and I didn't want to do it, but it was in my surgery prep notebook, was I had to, they wanted you to, you know, sign the waiver of, you know, what you want if things don't go well. And then they said, if you don't have a will, write a will. I mean, that's an encouraging word before you're getting ready to go into surgery, right? If you don't have a will, write a will. So I thought about it, and I, you know, what would I do? And so I got up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock in the morning, and one of the things that said on the list was plan your funeral. Don't leave, every, leave things. And I'm thinking, you know what? They're going to put me to sleep, and I don't know what they're And they're telling me to plan my funeral? Well, I got it up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I started writing, and I wrote all of these things down, you know, who I wanted to have this and who I wanted to have that and, you know, what, what daughter was going to get this and which grandchild's going to get my piano. And, you know, I went down the list, and then I decided to plan my funeral. The funeral I wrote down would have embarrassed Princess Diana. I finally decided that maybe it wasn't a good idea to make my sons carry my casket from the church to the graveyard because they did come and throw up on me in the middle of the night, and I was the one that changed their diapers, and so they should have to carry me, right? I mean, no hearse, just you got to carry me on your shoulders. Uh, but may, then I decided about 3 o'clock in the morning maybe that wasn't such a good idea, so I deleted it off my computer, and I 
really got down to serious business. And I wrote a letter to all four of my children. And I thought, what do I really want to say to them? And there are things that I did. I wanted to say to my children, I'm not letting them read it until I'm gone. (laughs) What would I really want to say to my kids if I knew I wouldn't get to say anything else? And I decided I would only want to say two things. Love Jesus with everything that's in you and be sure my grandchildren come to heaven. That's all I want. Everything else, you know, you can have the stuff. You can give it away. You can sell it. We all know there's going to be one big library book sale at at the end of the line because nobody wants their stuff. One of my good friends told me, she said, I eat off my china every morning. I have my coffee. I have my breakfast on my china every morning because I decided my daughter-in-laws don't even like it anyway. So when I die, they're probably going to sell it in a yard sale for a nickel apiece. So I'm going to enjoy it. And if I break every piece of it, it's mine to break. James sat down with a pen and paper and he thought, These people are being persecuted. These people have been sent and scattered. They are in places they don't want to be. They want to be home. They want to be with their families. They want to be celebrating the joys of Christ with followers followers like themselves. And instead, they're scattered all over the world. What's really important that I say to them? And what he chose to say to them is what he wrote in the book of James. And he starts out by saying, faith and endurance are equal parts of what makes up a passionate follower of Christ. We like the faith part. We like the, you know, let's stand on our faith. Let's proclaim our faith. Let's shout from the housetop our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when it gets to the other side of the page and we have the endurance part. That's a whole different ball game. For we want to talk about the faith and standing firm. And he encourages them in that. He says, stand in your faith. Remember when you came to faith. Remember what it was like when you first put your trust in the Father. But he also says, I know you're in the midst of trials. And I know you're in the midst of persecution. And I'm going to tell you, there's great joy in endurance. He says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. We want to see our children grow. We want to see new believers growing in their relationship with God. But do you ever wonder, Lord, why the trials part? Why the endurance part? But something comes out of that that happens at no other time except when we walk through a difficult place and we stand firm in our faith and we stand firm in what we know God has said is true. What would I say? What did James want to say? The thing that was most important. I know where you're at. I know you're experiencing trials, and I want to encourage you, hang on, because it's worth it in the end. A passionate follower of Christ needs some things in their life. A passionate follower of 
Christ needs to have certain things working in their life. And the first thing is wisdom. If you need wisdom, James chapter 1 verse 5 says, Ask our generous God. He will give it to you. And he'll not rebuke you for asking. Have you ever needed to ask a question? And you thought, I'm not going to ask that. It's a silly question. Or have you ever wanted to ask a question of someone and you thought, I'm not going to ask it because I know that person and they'll jump all over me and rebuke me for asking the question. So you don't ask? James is saying, our God in heaven, our master, the one who I have said I'm his slave, he is generous. And if we ask him for wisdom, he's going to give us an abundance of wisdom. A young man, when approached by God and said, what do you need to rule a kingdom? And the young man Solomon said, I need wisdom. And God gave him so much wisdom that he goes down in history. When you think of wisdom, you automatically think of Solomon. If God gives us just a drop of his insight, just a drop of his generosity, then the wisdom he imparts to us is greater than anything we can imagine. We also need something called stability. James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 says, Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. We like stability. We like being able to stand on solid ground. When we were on sabbatical this summer, we did something pretty cool. We went rock climbing. I wasn't going to rock climb. I set it all up. I got the guide. I got the guys, uh, Dennis, our boys, my brother-in-law. We all headed up to the mountain, and we were with a couple that used to be our youth pastors when we were in Georgia, and he's, he's the, they call him a belayer. He's the guy that, you know, holds onto your rope and makes sure you don't fall off the mountain. And what happens? My friend, my good buddy, my girlfriend that we had our babies together and drug them all over the place, Carol is the first one up the mountain. She straps on that rope, she gets that harness, and she goes up that mountain like it's nobody's business. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, great. Carol just went up that mountain. That means I've got to go up that mountain. <laughs> but there was something, and, I, and if you know me, if you've ever helped me decorate this stage, you know I don't go over anything but the three little step ladder. If it gets any higher than that, I am not going up there. That's why I got you guys and big ladders. So if you have no fear of heights, then be here next week to help Ketty with the stage, okay? Because <laughs> I don't go up there. And we were at this literal cliff straight up the side of the mountain. And I started up. And I forgot to be afraid. <laughs> Because all you can think of is finding anything stable that you can hang on to. 
And the guys and Carol were the best at encouraging along because it was tough. And there were times that your fingers are hanging onto this and your fin- and they're, they're going, okay, put your foot up over your shoulder in the next little crack. And you're going, what? <laughs> my foot does not go over my shoulder. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, shimmy out on this ledge that was literally this wide and about the length of this platform. And they're like, shimmy down about another. And they're hollering up the side of the mountain. They're you can do it, Mom. Hang on. But you know what gave me courage? You know what kept me going up the side of that mountain? I knew Mark had the other end of that rope. And I knew Mark Holloway would fall off that mountain before he let me fall off that mountain. And I also knew my husband was going to come after me. My kids say my husband got all the way to the top just because he had to go two foot further than I did. So, uh, But we'll, we'll leave that to see. There was something about being in an unstable situation when I knew there was somebody that was both encouraging and was able to step back. Because you see, when your face is up against the rock and your body is hanging on by the tips of your fingers and your feet are not sure where the next stronghold is, you need somebody who's got a different perspective. Because you see those guys on the ground down there, they could, hollow up, they could holler up, Mom, the next ledge is just, a, just go up six inches. It's right there. You can put your foot on that. Go up just a little bit. And you know with confidence because they can see things you can't see. And that's the way it is with God. He has a perspective. He has a wisdom. And he has a stability to be able to step back and say, Whatever situation you are in, just listen. I'm going to coach you through it. Don't be unstable. Because you see, if I had tried to do that in my own strength, if I had refused to listen, I'd have fallen off the mountain. I probably would have never gone up in the first place. But knowing that there was something bigger than me that was going to help me up the side of that mountain... God blesses those who patiently endure. We need wisdom, we need stability, and we need some endurance. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. What is endurance? Endurance is four hours in the, chair, the dentist chair last week with no anesthetic. And the dentist saying, now, you don't need it for this procedure. And I'm thinking, you give me that sharp metal thing you've got, and, let me, and you sit here and you tell me if I, you don't need it. Because I wasn't too confident about that. Endurance. It's the thing that makes us stick it out. It's the thing that makes us keep climbing when we want to back down. It's the thing that makes us keep pressing forward when all the trials around us say we should quit. James makes a real distinction between testing and temptation. Testing is something that is external. 
It's something you can't control. It's what these Jewish believers were experiencing when they suffered persecution and they had to go to the other parts of the world just to get away from the persecution. Temptation is, the, is those things that are internal. The trials come from the outside. The temptation comes from the inside. James says it best, so why try to put anything else with it? Verses 13 through 15. Remember when you're being tempted. Do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempting to do wrong. He never tempts anyone. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We used to do this thing with our youth group when kind of an illustrated lesson or in children's ministry. You know, you get a big bucket of ice cream, and it looks good. And you give them a spoon, and you say, it's yours. Have at it. And they're like, what? Really? Sure. Have at it. Anything you want in there. Just, just eat all you want. And they start eating. And then you reach over and you grab a little bag of dirt. And you sprinkle a little dirt in it. And they look at you like, what are you doing to my ice cream? And you go, don't worry. It's, it's just a little dirt. You know. Oh, stir it up a little bit. You'll never know what's in there. And then they say, you know, if you've got a really aggressive junior high boy, he'll probably eat it. And then you pour in a little more dirt. And you go, you just ignore it. And then you keep going until the ice cream is full of dirt. And they're looking at that going, I'm not eating that. But that is exactly what temptation begins as a thought, as a little thing that says, hey, Eve, did God really say that? Did God really say if you eat of this fruit of the tree that you'll die? Maybe God didn't really mean that. Maybe what God meant. And don't we do that? We do it in our own minds. There's that little thought that comes, and then we think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's just a little dirt. I'll stir it up in the ice cream, and we won't even know it's there. It's just a little thing. I can cheat here, I can fudge there, I can maybe stretch the truth a little bit, I can just not say anything at all, or maybe I can do this just once and then I won't do it again, or maybe I can go here or be this or be that. When that takes root, it goes from the thought to the action to the controlling. Temptation starts in the head. Resisting temptation starts in the heart. God, because of my relationship with you, there are things sometimes that I look at it, I think, you know, I could do that. It's not that big of a deal. You know, it, it, it won't hurt anybody. It really wouldn't even hurt my testimony. But I know that deep inside... I've committed myself to something greater. I've committed myself to Christ. And that everybody around me knows that. 
And it's not worth causing one little person to slip. Paul said it best. I can do a lot of things. You know, I can, I can be with the Greeks. I can be with the Gentiles. I can be with the Jews. It doesn't matter, but I'm always with God. Trials come from the outside. They're the things we can't control. They're when our child is away from God. They're trials that come when the economy crashes and there's not a thing we can do. Our retirement is gone. They're things that, that we have no control over that test and say, are you going to trust God? Are you going to keep climbing up this mountain? Or are you going to back down? We also need, as a passionate follower of Christ, we need truth. James says, don't be misled. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father. Truth, endurance, stability, and wisdom. We could stop there and say, yeah, that's great. James, you don't need to write anymore. We've got it. But we don't get it as fast as we should. We need to be encouraged because, you see, for every genuine article, there is a synthetic. There is something that pretends to be that thing, but it's not. They say if you want to know the difference between counterfeit money and real money, do you know what you do? You study the real money. You know what it feels like. You know what the ink looks like on it. You know the texture of the material it's made out of. You know what it smells like. And so if someone tells you this is real money and you look at it, you know it's not. I love pearls. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can tell a real pearl from a synthetic pearl just by touching it because I like pearls. And when you like something, you study it. You get to know it. There is a genuine and there is a synthetic when it comes to following after Christ, when it comes to saying, am I going to be a passionate follower of Christ or am I going to be somebody over here that, you know, has prayed a prayer and then walk out the door and think I can live any way I want to? Is that what I'm going to be like? If we want to know the genuine Get to know the genuine. The best way I can think to illustrate it is like this. Do you remember the, the old fairs where they would have the big tents and the big shows inside and they had, they called them barkers. They would stand outside the tent with their megaphone and they'd shout, come in here and see the greatest show on earth. Step into this tent and see whatever it was on the other side of the tent. I can imagine two tents side by side. And I'm standing there looking at these two tents, and the guys on the outside of the tent have their megaphones, and one of them is shouting, come into this genuine tent. Experience trials. You have to take responsibility for your moral behavior if you come in here. If you step in this tent, then you'll be a passionate follower. And I'm thinking, what? That's genuine? And then the other guy over here at the other tent, he's out there and he's hollering too. Step into my tent. 
It's the genuine thing. For in this tent you can have pleasure without consequence. No divine punishment here. That's just made up by someone to keep you in line. Come here. Belief without behavior in my tent. Ritual without righteousness. The genuine thing, trials, responsibility for my moral behavior, an obligation to be a passionate follower, that might not sound too much fun just hearing it presented that way, but the moment you step across the threshold of that tent, you step into freedom and you experience grace and joy and all the wonderful things that the Father has for us. But this other tent, the moment you step through that door, you experience, you realize that all of those things are not freedom, that they are bondage, that they are slavery, that you are stuck in something you never intended to get into. I have never, ever, ever had a person sit in the office or in my living room and say, you know, I really intended to get away from God. I really intended to walk away from my faith. I really intended to do these bad things and let these addictions creep into my life. Every one of them say, I don't know how I got here. It, it started as a small thing. It started as a, a little thing. And I began to move away from God. I begin to think, you know, I don't need a Bible study. I can, I can read the Bible on my own. But then they never do. I don't need Wednesday night. You know, I go to church on Sunday. Why do I need to go on Wednesday? Or I went to church last week. You know, they're going to do the same thing they did the same week before. So why do I need to go back? Or, you know, every once in a while is good. But if you find somebody that wants to be a passionate follower of Christ, that wants to give Christ every bit of their service, every bit of their worship, every bit of their heart, then they are anxious and willing and wanting and looking for opportunities. They have experienced the difference between the genuine and the synthetic. Synthetic silk feels pretty good, but it is nothing like the real thing. The life of a passionate follower is built on four things. Faith, that's my trust in God. Hebrews 11 describes it perfectly. Faith is the things I can't see. It's the evidence of what I can't put my hand on. Faith is the reality of what God is. Faith is my trust in God. Wisdom is my surrender to God. God, I don't see the picture you see. God, I don't see the whole thing like you do. God, I don't have your knowledge and your insight. So I totally surrender to you. Morality is my responsibility to God. What is the first thing they say, people say? And we've said it, and if you've raised a child at all, you've heard it. I, I did, it wasn't my fault. It, it, you know, it just fell off the, the shelf. It just, you know, I didn't mean to lie. Dr. Dobson's used to say, don't set your children up to lie to you. Never ask them, did you do this? 
Because they're going to look at you and go, no. How many of you have seen the pictures and the little video clips on Facebook of the little kid that he has got chocolate from his head to his toes? It's dripping off his chin. It's his hands are just covered in chocolate. And his mother says, did you get into the cake? And he goes, nope. She said, you didn't eat the cake? Nope. Did you take a bite of the cake? Nope. Oh, well, what happened to the cake? I don't know. And the little boy's standing there covered in the evidence. We always want to do the things that we want to do without having any of the responsibility. But if we're going to be passionate followers of Christ, then we have to take some responsibility for our actions. And that's not a fun thing to do. We would really rather be in the other tent where it's just like, oh, come on, no consequences. But there are consequences whether we acknowledge them or we want to admit it or not. That is my responsibility to God, to follow after Him. And prayer is my communication with God. James says He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true Word, and we, out of all of creation, are His prized possession. James is saying, you're the most precious thing that God created. And of all of those things, following after him should be an easy thing. We are his treasure. Life as a passionate follower of Christ requires action on our part. It's wonderful to kneel, to walk an altar, uh, an aisle, to come to an altar. It's wonderful to lift your hand and say, I want to be a follower of Christ. But the moment you leave that place of prayer, that place of true commitment, then you walk out of that door with some responsibility. You walk out of that door with not being left alone to change on your own because none of us could do that. That's when the Holy Spirit locks his arm with yours and says, we're going to do this. But there is responsibility that requires action on my part if I'm going to be a passionate follower of Christ. In James verse 19 in chapter 1, he describes it very, very simply. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, show a little bit of self-control, and humbly accept the Word of God. Understand this, brothers and sisters, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. You can't blame it on being Irish ancestry. So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your soul. Monday, was it Monday or Tuesday? No, it wasn't. It was Saturday. I had all this day planned. I was going to do these projects around the house. I knew we had a long weekend. And I went in the bathroom upstairs, and I opened the cabinet door. Now, I have been gone from my house for almost three months. Stuff fell out of the cabinet. Anybody relate to that? Not only did stuff fall out of the cabinet, but the cabinet door that I asked to be fixed before I left town fell off in my hands. 
So I hollered, Amy, go in the laundry room and get a laundry basket. We pulled everything out of that cabinet. I went to the other bathroom. We pulled everything out of there. My poor mother-in-law didn't know what we were doing. And we took everything down to the kitchen table. I had seven bottles of deodorant. I had 13 bottles of bath oil, bath lotions, and you know, all of them have this much in them. So now all of them are the same color because I poured them all into the same bottle. It was like, okay, Tahiti and Beach Breeze. Yeah, those will go together. I had to take some action because this was stuff that was cluttering my life. James says sometimes you gotta just get in there and do the thing we don't wanna do. We have to clean out the filth. We have to clean out the clutter. We have to clean out the things that are taking our attention from being able to fully serve God with everything that we have. And sometimes it's good stuff. My husband came downstairs and he said, why is there perfume powder all over the bathroom floor? And I just gave him that look that we can give our husbands, you know, when it's like, don't ask because you don't want to know the answer to that question right now. Because that was what fell out on me the minute I opened the bathroom door. So there was beautiful perfume powder all over the floor. And he gave me that look back that says, oh, I'm going clean the garage. I think I'll leave you alone for a little while. And we did. We cleaned the linen closet. We cleaned the cabinets. We got everything taken care of. We went through and got things of things that were actually empty bottles that were still in the cabinet. I don't know how they got there. It goes back to that other point of where nobody takes responsibility. But it was my action to step up and clean it out. And as believers, sometimes the Holy Spirit will put his finger on a little place in our heart and go, we need to deal with that. We need to talk about this a little bit. And you think, well, God, it's just a little thing. A few years ago, I was griping to God. I know none of y'all ever do that. I know, you, I know it's, you know, it's, it's my sinful nature that pops up anymore. And I was, I was telling God, you know, what a good person I am and why I should have this and why this should happen and why that should not happen. And the Holy Spirit does what he does best. He put his finger right on that spot, you know, driving down the road. And I talk to God out loud. So if you ever pass me on the road and I'm talking, you know, I'm not on the phone. God and I are having a discussion about something. Usually it's something I don't want anybody else to overhear. But the Holy Spirit just put his finger on that and said, you know what? That's envy. And I was like, it is not. <laughs> and the next red light, the Holy Spirit says, that's envy. And by the third red light, I'm going, okay, God, I admit, that's envious. I want that because they got that. I want that because I feel like I deserve that. I was talking to my dad when we were home over the summer, and my dad pastored for, I don't know, 30, 40, 
years. He's had 50 years in the ministry. And he said he was driving around town one day, and he was having that conversation with God. And he told me what street he was driving down. And I was telling God everything I had done for him. God, I went and pastored these little churches that nobody else wanted to pastor. I worked two jobs to support my family. I put my girls through college when we didn't have money. I sold my car so my daughter could have a wedding. And he's going on and on telling God, you know, what he's done. And he said, do you know what happened? And I'm like, no, Dad. You know, I'm waiting for a big revelation. You know, what did, what did God do? You know, God rewarded you with some great thing. He said, God looked at, he said, you know, God may not speak verbally. You know, I don't actually hear a voice, but you know what I'm talking about. In your heart, you know when you and God are having a conversation. And he said, God just put his finger on that spot and said, I know what you did for me, but let me tell you what I did for you. He said, I had to pull over in the side of the road on Cherry Street in downtown Macon and say, God, I'm sorry. Nothing I have ever done in any way measures up to forgiveness of sins, to your grace, and the fact that you've accepted me as a son, not a stepchild, not a grandchild, not a distant cousin, but you've called me a son, and I don't deserve any of that. You see, that sometimes brings us back into perspective when we acknowledge it's not me, it's not what I can do. It's not all the things that I can clean up, but it's when I let God be that still small voice that says, how about this? Let's make this not punishment. Let's make this not, uh, I'm going to put you down for what you've done. But God says, let's make this good so that you can go on to do good things. Because the end of the end of all of this is about joy. There are some do's and don'ts in walking this life as a passionate follower of Christ. We don't like do's and don'ts, but school started this week, and do you know what our kids got? A list of do's and don'ts. I remember taking my boys to buy clothes for, the, for school. We had homeschooled up until they went to high school, and when they went to high school, they had a dress code. They had been going to school in their pajamas for nine years. You can't do that when you go to school. We need to get some clothes. And we walked in. We went up to Birch Run to the outlet mall, and we walked in a store, and I had my list. And this wonderful, wonderful salesman who would not let me tip him at the end of the night stepped up, and he said, is that the school dress code? And I said, yes. He said, give it to me. They'll never listen to you. And he took that dress code from the school, and he went around the store, and he told my boys, you can have stuff off of that rack, you can have stuff off of that rack, don't even look over there, you can have this, you can have those, and there are three of them in the back that you can have. Well, my job was empty, I was great. I just piled it all on the counter and had my husband swipe the credit card. Life is good. I didn't have to fight that battle, but it took somebody stepping up that could say, you know what, sometime in life there are do's and don'ts, and I'm going to fight this battle for you. What are the do's that James says as a follower of Christ, and what are the don'ts? He says, don't just listen. 
Don't just listen to God. You must do what it says. Don't just be, I think another scripture says, hearers of the word. We've got to be doers as well. We can say it. We can read it. We can get our religious jargon down just right and still not be obedient. Don't just listen to God. Do what he says. And don't fool yourself. I love this scripture. I just quoted it to somebody this week. James says, don't be like the person that walks to a mirror and looks in the mirror and examines themselves and turn around and walks away and then they forget what they look like. You see, it's not that we forget what we looked like in the mirror. The mirror gives reality. We look in the mirror. I look in the mirror and my mother looks back. I don't know when that happened. I look in the mirror and I see the flaws. I see the things I need to fix. I see the things that need a little makeup. I see the things that need a little touch here and there. But if I walk away from that mirror and don't do anything about it, it hasn't done me any good. You see, when I walk away, I can be in denial. That doesn't exist in my life. I'm not like that. I don't do those things. I'm pretty good, God. When we walk back in front of the mirror again, we see the reality of what we are. And James says, don't do that. When you look in the mirror, remember what you look like. Because it's not about us, and it's not about what I can do, then let God walk through this with you. There are some do's in being a passionate follower of Christ. Study. He says, look carefully into the perfect law. Another scripture says, study to show yourself approved among men. Other scriptures say there are a group of men, the Bereans, who studied these things out to see if they were true. Study it. Read it. Just because we say it in this pulpit, go home and study it for yourself. Go home and read it for yourself. Go home and study. How will you know the genuine from the synthetic unless you're studying it yourself? unless you're knowing what those pearls really feel like, unless you're knowing what silk really feels like in your hands. Study. Secondly, obey. Don't just read it. Do what it says, and don't forget what you've heard. James 1.25. Don't forget the things you've been taught. Have you ever had that moment that a scripture came back to you? Something maybe you read a long time ago, and all of a sudden you're having a conversation with someone, and they're telling you about something in their life. They're telling you about something, and that scripture pops in your head, and you're able to tell them, well, the Word of God says, and then you're thinking, I don't remember memorizing that scripture. Where did it come from? Don't just do what it says, but don't forget what you've heard. Obey what you've heard. Be in control. If you claim to be righteous, but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Can I get really plain? 
If you claim to be religious, control your fingers on Facebook when you're typing out what you think because of someone else's views or comments. Because they don't go away. You just think they go away, but they don't. Control your tongue. Don't be just a religious person. Really be what God's called us to be. Show some self-control in your life. Be caring. James says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring, caring for widows and orphans in their distress. And finally, refuse to let the world corrupt you. That ice cream is good. That bucket of ice cream is great. Don't let somebody dump dirt in your ice cream. Don't let somebody corrupt what God began as a good thing in your life. Don't let situations determine how we live our life. Go back to the Word of God. See what he says, see what he teaches, see how he reacted. And if anybody could have told a story, it would have been the brother that grew up with Christ. And instead of saying, let me tell you all about my brother, let me tell you who I am and what privilege I've had of being the brother of Christ, no, that's not what he says. He says, let me encourage you in your trials. There's a bigger picture here than we can even see. Somebody else has got a hold of the ropes as we climb the mountains. And there is a reward that we cannot even imagine waiting as we come over the top of the crest. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. The earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. That's how James chose to close his letter. That's how James chose to end when he says, let me tell you the things that are really important. Where are you? We are all at some point on this journey, and that journey can change from moment to moment throughout the day. I can be happy one moment and in the middle of a trial the next. And James says, that's all right. Are you sick? Get the elders of the church together and let them pray for you. Are you suffering hardship? Pray. If you're happy, rejoice. There is something greater, and there is something bigger. And he basically says to us what I would have said to my children. Love God, serve God, and make sure the next generation knows. I'm going to ask you to stand tonight. Mark, I want us to sing that last song again. <clears throat> Some of us are at a point that we just need encouragement. And I'm telling you, you know, Wednesday nights, we're kind of family. Somebody's going to sit next to you Sunday morning that they're hurting, that they've just got news they didn't want to hear, that they opened a bill on the way to church that they weren't expecting, 
that something is going on. And you may be at a point that, you know, things are pretty good right now and you're happy. We don't look at them and judge and say, why aren't you singing? Why aren't you rejoicing? They're in that moment of prayer. They're in that moment of saying, God, I need some help. And as followers of Christ, as sisters and brothers, it's like my family and my friends when you're climbing a rock cliff saying, you can do this. The next hold is just three inches above you. It's, just, it's right there. Just reach up. You can reach it. You can do this. We encourage each other. We lift each other up. James, in a point that people were in some tough situations, says, let me encourage you. Let me pray for you. Don't give up. Don't get distracted. Stand firm. Because the end of this thing is really cool. And it's more than we could even imagine. So let's just close our eyes. And we're going to do just what the song says. We're going to lift our hands. You may have never lifted your hands in church before. But that's okay because we're all going to do it. I'm going to lift my hands. And if you're in a place of despair, we lift our hands till we can touch heaven. And Lord, we shout your name until those things that are trials, those things we have no control over come falling down in your name. And what's going to be in my heart is a heart of worshiping you regardless. I'm going to lift my hands. Till I can reach heaven, I'm going to shout your name. Till the walls come falling down, I've come to worship. I've come to worship. I'm going to sing my song. Like I am unashamed, I'm going to shout for joy. At the mention of your name, I've come to worship. I've come to worship. I'm gonna lift my hands till I can touch heaven. I'm gonna shout your name till the walls come falling down. I've come to worship. I've come to worship. Lord, I'm going to sing your song. Your song. Like I am unashamed, I'm going to shout for joy. At the mention of your name, I've come to worship. I've come to worship Lord, I know in my own life that some of the greatest moments of joy have come in my darkest moments of despair, have come when I've laid on the floor and said, God, I can't drink this cup you've put in front of me. And you have encouraged me. You've strengthened me. You've stabilized me in my faith. You've given me the wisdom I didn't have. Lord, you've given me the Holy Spirit to put his finger on that place in my heart that needs to surrender to you. And Father, I pray for each one of us here tonight, regardless of where we are.
If we're in a moment of tears or we're in a moment of rejoicing. Father, if we are in a moment of trial or maybe we're in a moment of temptation brought on by our own desires and the inability sometimes to feel like we can control our desires. Holy Spirit, the Scripture tells us that you draw people. Part of your job is to draw people to Christ. Would you help us, Lord, where we are weak? Would you strengthen us, Lord, where we can't see what's around the corner? Would you help us, God, to be aware of those around us? Not just widows and orphans, but God, that person next to us, that they need a word of encouragement. They need somebody to genuinely care. Lord, would you help us to be able to see through your eyes what's genuine and what's not real. God, would you help us to clear the voices and the clutter and the filth and the things that just need to be taken out, Lord, in our environment that keep us from being able to totally surrender to you. God, will you help us Lord, in our most feeble attempts, we are just a servant. We are just here to serve you and to give everything that we are to you. And you give us in return everything that is yours. Will you help us to follow you? Will you help us to honor you? Will you help us, O oh God, to be passionate followers of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go out this week and encourage somebody. Go out and ask. Be brave enough to say, God, what do you need to put your finger on in my life so that I can be a total passionate follower of you? Amen.